Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, 27 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must, must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. Well, a few weeks ago, I was teaching in Delaware, and on the way back, we went to the Museum of the Bible uh, to visit there in Washington, D.C. on the way back from Delaware with my family. And one of the most fascinating exhibits at this particular museum was this one. There was a Bible that was printed in 1808 that was known as the Slave's Bible, was what it was known as. Now, it was a Bible given by slave masters to their slaves, but here was the catch with this particular Bible. Everything to do with justice and freedom, everything that declared the theft of a human being to be a sin has been cut out of this Bible. It is an expurgated Bible that did not tell anything that would threaten those who were in power. So in other words, they've taken these parts out because for them to tell the whole truth about the, the word of God would have cost them too much. And so they cut it out and printed this Bible in 1808 that was widely distributed and keeping under wraps, so to speak, the whole truth about what God had to say. Now we criticize that and we should criticize things like that. But here's the truth. That is a temptation for every single one of us to say there are certain parts of the Bible that just cost me too much. And I may not actually cut it out, but I'm going to skip over it, ignore it, or downplay what it has to say. And so we find this particular text, and it is certainly one of those texts. That's a difficult text. If we read this and don't find it difficult, it's because we're not taking this text seriously. I was amazed in reading different scholars on this text throughout this week, how many of them had something to say that was basically, the point Jesus is making is that following him is impossible. He doesn't really expect anyone to follow exactly what he says here. This is just meant to help us despair of our own righteousness. Jesus doesn't expect us to do what it says in this text. But there's a simple reason why I don't think that Jesus Jesus didn't expect us to do what's in this text. And it's because of what Jesus says. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like someone who builds a house on a rock. Jesus says, I expect you to do this. I expect you to do what I set before you in this 
text, and this is so difficult, because Jesus clearly here is not merely concerned with what we do, nor is he merely concerned with what we think. He wants to transform our desires. And the religious leaders of his day, many of them had an idea that in essence that to do what God's commanded is enough. You just have to do what he says and avoid what he says specifically not to do. And as long as you do the right things and don't do the wrong things, everything will be fine. But Jesus is not looking for a mere outward conformity. We have a different form of that today. I think our form of it today is that we think, if I just think the right things, I must be righteous. If my beliefs are orthodox, if I have all the right truths that I believe and that I trust, then I am righteous. I will be righteous. We have this idea almost that we can read our way to righteousness. But the truth is, what you think doesn't necessarily determine what you do. And what you think certainly doesn't always change your desires. I have proof of this. Do you know what my proof of it is? Donuts exist. <laughs> Donuts exist. The fact is, you all know that donuts are terrible for you. You know they're awful for you. You know in your mind how many calories are in that. You know in your mind that it is full of fat. And yet when it is placed in front of you, what happens? You eat the donut. Why do you eat the donut? Because what you think and what you know doesn't always determine what you desire and you do what you desire. Now Jesus wants to get in deep into our lives and he wants to transform our desires. Knowing the truth is important, but knowing the truth by itself doesn't get you to where Jesus wants us to be. That's what propaganda is getting at. One of my favorite songs by him where he says this, my mouth has yet to catch up with what my heart knows and my heart is still light years behind my library. It's scary. And yours is and mine is. Our hearts are light years behind our libraries. What we think what we do is ultimately determined by what we desire. And Jesus wants to dig into what we desire. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. He wants us to deeply and desperately desire like we desire food and like we desire liquid to desire righteousness. And when Jesus talks about righteousness in this context, what he's getting at is a way of life in which our desires are increasingly conformed to the character of God. A way of life in which our desires are increasingly conformed to the character of God. And some of you hearing this, you're already uncomfortable because you realize that already this morning and this week, you've fallen short of what Jesus has to say here. And I'll just be honest, that's how I felt this whole week. You've just had this text for a few minutes. I've had this all week, trying to deal with this struggle with this particular text. And you know who you are, you know what you've done, but here's the truth that God gave me this week and I wanna give it to you, and it's this. Everything that God demands from me, he is ready and willing to supply for me in Christ. And that's what I have to say to you. Everything that God demands from you, he is ready and willing to supply for you in Christ. And so with that in mind, go back to that first moment when Jesus spoke these particular words. More than a thousand years before this, Moses had delivered the law of God from a mountain that was shrouded in all sorts of clouds and thunder and lightning. 
And here, Jesus is sort of a new Moses. Jesus is up on top of a much smaller mountain, but what he is shrouded in is not thunder and lightning and clouds, but it is God himself shrouded in human flesh with lungs and pores and fingernails and brown skin and black hair, healing the broken. He's been traveling around healing the broken, healing the diseased, and now he pauses to teach his disciples. And what he says in the Sermon on the Mount is shocking. He declares first that the oppressed are blessed. And then he calls his followers to a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees who were perceived as the most righteous people in their world. And then he steps into the most intimate parts of our lives. He steps into our sexuality. We've got to understand that God's design from the very beginning is for marriage. A lifelong commitment of a man and a woman to each other is the only context for our sexual relationships. And this is because God loves us. It's at this point that we are the most vulnerable and the most intimate. And what God desires for us is for no one to be afraid or abused or degraded or discarded in this context, but for it to be a relationship where they are valued and cherished and that sexuality is not merely a momentary joining of bodies, but a lifelong mingling of souls. But we have rebelled against God's design. And the way in which the religious leaders of Jesus' day were rebelling against God's design is using religion as a mask for their rebellion. In essence, saying, look, it's only about what you do. As long as you don't do something that God forbids, everything is okay. But Jesus says to them, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus is saying here, it's not just what you do. It's what you desire. And if you fix your gaze on somebody for the purpose of fantasizing about them sexually, you have already rebelled against God's design in your heart. Now, here's what Jesus is not saying. I want to get that out of the way first. He is not saying this is only something that applies to men. Jesus is speaking to his first followers in a context and in a world where men were excusing their sin, and he's addressing that context. But remember, Jesus was there as part of the design team of Father, Son, and Spirit when Sex 1.0 was created, okay? Jesus was there. He knows about our sexuality, and he created it as something beautiful and as something good. And so he's not saying, he, he knows about sexual desire. He designed it. He knows that both men and women have deep and real desires for intimacy that can become disordered in different ways. And so if you're a woman, this is about you as well. This isn't just about men at this point. This is about women as well. But Jesus is also not saying that adultery in the heart is the same as adultery in the flesh, where you could say, well, I thought it, so I might as well do it because I've already sinned in this way. That's not what he's saying at all, because when you move from desire to deed, we add sin upon sin and we involve somebody else in our sin. But what Jesus is getting at is that my righteousness is not just about what you do, it's about what you desire. And God wants so much more for you than to conform your life to an outward deed, he wants to transform our desires. But then Jesus goes even deeper He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to go to eternal life one-eyed than to go into hell with both eyes. He says, if your hand does, chop it off and throw it to the side. And just let's be honest, 
this is a little extreme. I mean, this is a little extreme at this point, what Jesus is saying here. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. What is he getting at? He's saying to get rid of in your life, to cut out whatever trips you or traps you. That's what he's saying. And notice something. Jesus doesn't say to cut off any of the body parts you might think he would say to cut off in this context. That's not what he says. Now, it's as if Jesus is saying the body parts that you think are the problem aren't the real problem. They aren't the real problem. The real problem is what you look at, you gaze at, and what you long to touch. That's the real issue. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to be ready to cut off whatever stands in the way of complete faithfulness to him. That's what he's saying. Cut off whatever keeps you from being wholeheartedly faithful to him. I don't think Jesus is saying to us to next Sunday on Easter Sunday to show up looking like pirates because we've got an eye patch and a hook for a hand because we took this literally all this week. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying to you, do whatever it takes, cut off whatever it takes to put your desires to death, the desires that are for that which is wrong. That's what he's saying. And the alternative to this is condemnation. That's what he sets as the alternative. It's not grade two Christianity and you just don't get to the highest level of Christianity. It's condemnation is the other option at this point. Now that's not because you lose your relationship with God when you fail, when you falter. God is faithful even when we are faithless. It's not because of that. It's because if we aren't willing to go to war against these desires that war within us, we aren't going to willing to go to war against them, then it's a sign that we are not truly followers of Jesus in the first place. And some of you are struggling already wrestling with what does this mean? And some of you are wrestling with pornography, something the church doesn't talk about a lot, but we're going to today. 40 out of every 100 men in the church are at some level struggling with pornography and 14 at least out of every 100 women in the churches. And if this is a pattern in your life, hear me. This is not just that you're participating in an industry that degrades human beings. This is not just that you're participating in something that furthers human trafficking. This isn't just that you're rewiring your brain to look at people as objects for your pleasure. This is that you're choosing a path to hell instead of a path to Christ. That's what you're talking about here. And my goal in that is not to call you to doubt your salvation and say, oh my goodness, did I really trust Jesus? Did I not trust Jesus? Maybe I meant it, maybe I really didn't. That's not my goal at all. My goal is to call you to repent and to take radical measures to be faithful to Jesus. You see, that conviction and that feeling within you of, God, I, I, I need to seek you. I want a different desire. That feeling within you, that is a gift from God that is a sign that the Spirit of God is working in you. It's a beautiful and good gift from God. And so I ask you, what do you need to cut what do you need to cut out? The television programs you're watching that just awaken desires that ought not to be there. Skip the scene, skip the show. Places you go that you, this just awakens desires that I just can't deal with at this point. 
Take somebody with you to hold you accountable or avoid those places. It may be that you're at a point in your life and you're struggling in some areas where you can't handle having a smartphone. And I, when I tell people this sometimes, like, I can't give that up. I've got Facebook, I've got news, I've got sports scores. I've got to have all those. But I ask you, is your smartphone worth going to hell for? That's what I want you to consider in this. One commentator on this text says, Jesus does not advise cautious, gradual action. He counsels surgery immediately. He does not advise band-aids. He commands amputations. Desperate cures require desperate cuts. And the goal in this is not just to stop what you're doing because that becomes just a new religiosity on the outside. I'm going to stop doing this and my goal is to stop doing what I'm doing. It just becomes a new religiosity about keeping the rules. No. What this is about is to glimpse the beauty and the glory and the freedom of Jesus and to cut off whatever is blinding you to the beauty of Jesus. The answer is having a hunger and thirst for righteousness that is bigger and that is better than any look or any link. And think about the freedom and the joy that would give us as a community. Our sisters and brothers can come together in community groups and they have a sense of, I can be free because I know that I'm going to be treated not as an object, but as a person. Where if there's abuse that happens, we don't sweep it under the rug. We deal with it and we deal with it well. And where in our marriages, we grow into marriages where wives and husbands are ferociously committed to each other and the world around us sees that. And even though they may disagree with things that we believe, they say, I like what I see in them. That's where it leads us. It's something that is beautiful and that is joyful. Now in verse 31, Jesus moves from wholehearted sexuality to wholehearted integrity in verse 31, where Jesus says that at that point, it was also said whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Now let's think about this for a moment, understand the context. In the time when the Old Testament law was given, back in the Old Testament, uh, there was a context, it was a context where women had very few rights and very few options. And God knew there would be men who dismissed their wives for reasons other than sexual unfaithfulness, who divorced their wives for other reasons. And so God, through Moses, provided a protection for these women. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, if a man marries a woman and she displeases him, he must draw up a certificate of divorce before he dismisses her. And this certificate protected her in some sense. Let her have a new start in life. It was a means of protection for her. But by the time of Jesus, we have rabbis like Rabbi Hillel who said that if a woman merely burns your dinner, that's cause enough for you to dismiss her, to send her away. By the next century, in the second century, Rabbi Akiva says, if there's just somebody else you find more attractive than your current wife, you can dismiss her and marry that person. That's what's happening in this context. This is in a continuum in which this is a pattern or practice. And the idea was that since God mentioned this in the Old Testament, God's good with this. God must be fine with this because after all, he allowed it in the Old Testament, therefore he must be fine with it. And I think the practical result of that had to have been wives who were living in fear like slaves instead of living in the security of being an equal partner in the marriage. 
And Jesus, in essence, says here, you've taken what my father just allowed and you've turned it into a tool to exploit others for your own benefit. That's what Jesus seems to be getting at at this point. And so he says, I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of every time in every situation in which Christians may divorce. Paul gives other situations and circumstances. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. He is addressing a particular issue in a particular context and letting them know what God's standard is. But he says, when this happens, not only are you sinning, but you're causing other people to sin. Your sin never stays just with you. It affects and infects the lives of others. And the context here calls us, if you're married, to be fiercely and ferociously faithful and to fight for that in your marriage. To cherish your spouse in such a way that you're living in freedom, of the freedom of faithfulness, of knowing we can trust one another. And some of you at this point are struggling in your marriage and there's somebody at work or somebody in your circle of friends and you know how you feel when they walk in the room. And you know if things were to continue what might happen at that point. And you aren't exactly shutting the door to that. A text like this calls us to faithfulness. Fight for your marriage. Fight for faithfulness. Say no, even to those temptations, those things that are just are open in your mind and maybe even that you're deceiving yourself about to fight for faithfulness. So it's not just about what you do, it's about what you desire. So what do we do with this practically in our lives? Let's just think carefully about it. I wanna leave you with just a few things that we can do practically to apply this in our lives. First off, cut off whatever needs to be cut off. What is it that needs to be cut off in your life? Do not do like those in 1808 who decided, you know what, we're going to edit things in the Bible so that it fits our structures of what we want to do. Say, no, I will obey no matter how difficult it is. I will obey God no matter what. I will cut off whatever needs to be cut off, regardless of the cost. Cut off whatever needs to be cut off. Seek to have God transform your desires. And you're like, I wonder, and this is what I wonder as I read this, and I struggled with this. How are our desires changed? I want to give you some thoughts on that. First and foremost, our desires are never changed alone. If you're going to have your desires transformed, it's going to happen in community. What that means practically is if you're struggling with things that you've been convicted of today, do not end this day without starting to deal with it. To talk to somebody, hopefully more than one somebody, and for you to tell them, I'm struggling with this. I want to have new desires. But I want to give you something else as well. And it's develop liturgies of your life to reshape your desires. Now, we often think of liturgy as the stuff we read on Sunday morning. But liturgy really is anything that you do repeatedly to shape and to transform you. And here's what I want to suggest to you. 
Each time you face the particular temptation that you want to change your desires in, have a specific liturgy, a set of things you do when you feel that every single time. It may be that you have a list of four things that you just have in your mind that you say, every time this happens, there's a certain person I'm going to text. There's a certain person I'm going to call. I'm going to turn on all the lights and I'm going to recite this scripture and put on this song that reminds me of the goodness and the greatness and the beauty of God. And every time you hit that temptation, you do those things repeatedly to reshape your desires and reorient them to God's desires. Whatever you do, begin transformation today. Don't let it go. Cut off what needs to be cut off. And if somebody today or in the next few days in your community group shares with you, look, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. Don't just awkwardly say, oh, okay, that's interesting, that's nice, and, and we'll pray for you, which is a code for we don't know what to do with you. No. Instead, be there for them. Shower them with love and shower them with the joy of them knowing that God has worked in their life and we are grateful for it. Pour love into their life. If somebody says, I'm struggling in an area, So cut off whatever needs to be cut off and start today. The second thing I want to say to you is start wherever you are. Start where you are. Don't be looking back and saying, oh man, a few years ago, I did this that was wrong. You may realize that that, that there was a situation in which you sinned against God in this. You may have been involved in a divorce that was something that wasn't right, but that isn't fatal. Divorce isn't death and failure isn't fatal and it isn't final. Wherever you're at right now, start serving Christ now, here. God doesn't expect us to go back and change the past. Not even God can change the past. But we can start serving him from where we're at. You may have failed miserably yesterday. You may have failed miserably before you even got here this morning. But start where you're at right now. And remember in that that what God demands from us, he supplies for us in Christ. Whatever you need to start from where you're at, God will provide that. Look for how he is supplying that. And last of all, rest in Christ. Jesus died in your place for all of those times that you have fallen short of his righteousness. And even in your addiction, even in your struggles, even in your disordered desires, God desperately loves you in the midst of it all. On a hill, there's a cross, and on the cross, there is blood for you. I don't want to leave you in your shame because that's not where God wants to leave you. God wants to leave you in deliverance and not leave you at all, but to be with you as he delivers you. That's where God wants you to be. He loves you desperately. And know that so many times when our lives are disordered in these areas, there's something underneath that that drives our disordered desires. There may be abuse. There may be experiences we've had in the past that sometimes we haven't even owned up to completely. And know that God knows those things, all of them. And he loves you desperately. And he wants to draw you out of that.
He wants to. He desperately loves you. I want us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And for have, a, have a, such a hunger and thirst for righteousness that our desire for the beauty of Jesus overwhelms every other desire. It doesn't happen all at once. You're not going to pray and suddenly, boom, all your desires change. It's hard. It takes time. It's painful. But what God demands, God supplies in Christ. He demands nothing that he does not supply. Let's pray. God, we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you that you do not want to leave us with the disordered desires that we struggle with, but you want to give us a hunger and thirst for you. And God, as we partake of this meal now, let the momentary taste of the bread and the wine remind us of the fact, the truth, the beautiful truth that you want to satisfy our hungers with you. In your name we pray, amen.